Chapter Four of The Heron Nest by W. Burt Foster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter Four Getting into Harness. It had been agreed that Pearl Mary should hold her situation in the fur shop as long as she could, and she went back and forth to her work on the trolley each day. This long walk, night and morning, made it very hard for the girl who was unused to exercising the muscles brought into play by walking. She grew thin and panted in mounting the rising ground between the edge of the village and rack and ruin villa. She would not give up. It was only for a few weeks at best, she told herself. The family needed her wages, so for moving had taken every penny that they had, and they faced the new life with nothing but courage. The three elders of the family made no complaint. Mr. Heron was as biteable as a child. Granny was always cheerful, even when the rheumatism gripped her, and Aunt Nanny was gently grateful that they were enabled to escape the horrors of tenement life. She continued her work for the jobbing house. Although fast as her fingers might fly, her weekly income never amounted to three dollars. Hope was big in the hearts of the boys, however. There was the sum of sixty dollars in sight, and that was sure. Mr. Mendham would even advance them a part of it if they were in need. Their hands were busy, as well as their brains, and both Billy and Jack were inclined to live in the present and not fatten any anxiety for the future. Crossing bridges before they're in sight is a most unhappy habit, Billy said, warmingly, more than once. The aunt and the old story, of course, is to be commended for her foresight and caution, but there's something to be said on the side of Mr. Grasshopper, too. At least he added to the gaiety and sweetness of the world while the summer lasted, and some of these serious, trouble-expecting folk really darkened the sunshine about them. Make up your mind to do your little old best, pursued this cheerful philosopher, and give a good and merciful omnipotence a chance to help you over the hard places when you come to them. At any rate, foreseeing trouble without being able to ward it off is a gift that I don't crave. If misfortune is bound to happen, I don't want to know it much in advance. It disturbs my digestion. And Billy Heron practiced his own preachments. As his unaccustomed muscles grew hardened to the tasks he made them, at first by sheer willpower perform, his ability to see the best side of everything that happened became more pronounced, too. His enthusiasm did much to carry the whole family over the shock of the change and the first few weeks of their new existence. Jack and he were busy from the first streak of morning light until long after dark, and they found in Mr. Heron an unexpected but welcome aid when they really set to work to clear the foundations of the burned house and stable. He was to be trusted out of doors here, he could come to no harm, and he was at once much happier in his increased freedom. Although his mental powers were debilitated, his physical powers were vigorous, and Billy saw that labor of the hands would be the very best habit his father could form. They set him to work on the more simple tasks of clearing up. 
He could use a shovel and could throw the rubbish out of the cellars. He could help Jack lift and tug at the heavier timbers, and after some trouble they even taught him to clean brick. Mr. Menden had given them permission to make what use they could of the abandoned building materials. After the boarding for the foundation walls was built, and the boys hoped to make a little by the sale of the best of the brick, there had been an ornate chimney at either end of the Darnell residence, and, after the fire, these had fallen into the cellar. Several thousand of the brick were quite as good for ordinary building purposes when cleaned as when fresh from the kiln. Mr. Heron proved so helpful that Jack urged his brother to leave the cleaning of the cellars to himself and his father, while Billy gave his attention to other and lighter tasks. The boys came very soon to the point in the cleaning up process where the use of a horse and wagon was necessary. Jack suggested going into the village, where there was a large stable at which teams were to be hired, engage a wagon and horse for the day, and do all they could within the time limit to remove the useless rubbish which had already been thrown out of the cellars. But as it chanced, they obtained the help they needed without the expenditure of time or money. Billy had painted a neat sign reading, Good Brick for Sale, and had nailed it to a post and set the post by the gateway. The farmer whose land joined the Darnell place on the west was a very long man named Short, Lias Short, according to the speech of the neighborhood. He frequently drove past the Darnell place behind a tough-looking, shaggy Canadian pony, sitting doubled up like a jackknife on the seat with his knees almost touching his long chin, but with a pair of very sharp, twinkling eyes that never failed to overlook the doings about the Darnell Villa with marked curiosity. When Billy put out his sign, it gave Mr. Short an immediate excuse for stopping when next he came along. "'Hello, young feller,' was the way in which he hailed Billy, who chanced to be the one in sight. "'Air them bricks any good at all?' "'They're just as good as though you bought them at the brickyard, and a whole lot cheaper,' declared Billy. "'Come in and look at them.' Mr. Short did so. Mr. Heron had piled the clean brick very neatly, and many of them did not even show marks of the fire. The farmer's weather-beaten countenance expressed nothing, but his eyes narrowed, and Billy knew that he scented a bargain. "'I gotta fix up my smokehouse before next hog-killing time,' he observed. "'I allow I might make use of some of these old bricks, if you're letting them go cheap enough. You know, money's scarce this time of year.' "'They won't cost you a penny, Mr. Short.' declared the crippled youth promptly. How many can you use? Eh? ejaculated the farmer, his eyes opening wider in surprise, and he eagerly stated the number he wanted. All right, you can have them. You're not using your team much this time of year, I suppose. The hosses are certainly eating their heads off, declared Mr. Short. You'll draw the brick yourself, then. And in payment, said Billy, calmly, you can draw away three loads of this debris 
for every load of good brick you take. Is it a bargain? Why, why, I don't know, stammered Short, whose speech, as well as his body, did not fit his name. Where'll I dump the stuff? Suit yourself about that, as long as it's off this place, returned Billy, briskly. There's a little piece in the road betwixt your place and Sowersby's, drawled the farmer. What do you say to spreading it there? I'll see the road surveyor and make it all right. Billy agreed. He was only too glad to get rid of the refuse from the cellars without the expenditure of a penny. And, as Mr. Short considered that he had the best of the bargain, it was all very pleasant. The farmer displayed a good deal of curiosity regarding the herons and their affairs, and it was not so easy to shut off his investigations in certain directions. But Billy was good-natured about it, seeing plainly that the man's interest was friendly. "'You don't tell me you're going to stay here and run this farm,' Mr. Short said, in surprise. "'Why, you're city folks, ain't you?' "'Yes, we are, and we've got a lot to learn, Mr. Short.' said Billy, frankly, but we're only going to cultivate as much of the land as we can easily handle while we are caring for the whole farm for the owner. So you got charge of the whole fifty acres, eh? queried Short, reflectively. Air you keeping your eye on the timber up yonder, too? And he indicated the heavily wooded mountainside, which shielded the cultivated portion of the Darnell Place from the north. We're supposed to look out for Mr. Menden's entire property here, declared Billy, firmly. While the place has lain idle, I understand that there has been some trespassing, but I hope we shall have no trouble of that kind, Mr. Short. No, well, I hope not, replied the farmer, somewhat grimly. I guess, though, you've got your work cut out for you. Take it all round. Why, I'll come for the first load of bricks tomorrow. Before Pearl Mary's work at the fur shop ceased, the bulk of the clearing up around the place was accomplished, and when Jack had completed the boardings to shelter the stone foundations of the burned house and stable, it did not look so much like rack and ruin. During the long evenings, the three young folk laid their plans for the spring work, Although the heavier part of the labor must of necessity fall on Jack, it was Billy's intelligence that arranged the campaign. The fifty-acre farm lay upon the mountainside, mountain by courtesy, and was rather a narrow strip of land with a good frontage on the Medway Road and a narrower one on the old Northfield Pike behind the higher ridge of the mountain. The farm was naturally terraced. Some distance above the site of the burned mansion, a broad creek crossed the widest part of the farm, and there was some good pasture on either side of this stream. Not more than ten acres of the place had ever been cultivated. Mr. Darnell had had a good garden the two seasons that he and his family had lived here, and that garden patch, although grown to weeds, was in very good condition. The level piece on which the foundations of the mansion still stood, and which bordered the road, contained about four acres. Here was the garden, 
the berry patch, and the young fruit trees, an old and long-neglected apple orchard occupied a portion of the second terrace. But at first, Billy would not allow his own eyes, or those of Jack and Pearl Mary, to be cast beyond that four-acre piece. We mustn't bite off more than we can chew, he said, with more philosophy than elegance. We can use only the land that we can properly enrich and spade over, and then cultivate. That's the most important item, cultivation, thorough and frequent. The man who sows more seed than he can keep the weeds out of wastes at both ends of the game, and although spading is far better for the land than even subsoiling, it is back-breaking toil and will have to fall to the share of Jack almost altogether. We cannot afford to hire the garden ploughed and harrowed. We must do everything by hand and by methods of intensive farming, get a bumper crop off of every square foot of soil. Billy was an omnivorous reader and had always been interested in gardening. He had been born with that love of seeing and helping things to grow and devoutly believed with great Dean Swift that whoever could make two ears of corn or two blades of grass to grow upon a spot of ground where only one grew before would deserve better of mankind and do more essential service to his country than the whole race of politicians put together. For years, the crippled youth had collected the informing little booklets issued by seed houses and his knowledge of theoretical farming was not inconsiderable. It is what one learns in childhood that is really learned well, and Billy had spent many hours at work in his own little garden, and under the tutelage of the old gardener that Mr. Heron had been in the habit of hiring each season when the family was in good circumstances. The decision of greatest importance, Billy declared, was the choice of the crop to be raised. He had his own idea regarding this point, and was determined to try a crop which farmers throughout the North have not, in the past, seemed fully to appreciate. But he deferred the discussion of this with Jack and Pearl Mary until later. Meanwhile, the latter toiled daily at the fur shop in the city, but the toiling home at night after the day's work was done was infinitely more tiring for the delicate girl. Often the car she boarded was filled with workers as tired as herself. She had no right to expect some man who had paid for his seat and secured it to give it up to her. The conditions under which shop people labor at the present day is fast stamping out all courtesy and breeding a selfish race. So Pearl Mary often had to stand the greater part of the distance from the city to Medway and when she left the car was scarcely able to drag one foot after the other. She tried her best to hide her weariness from the family, especially from Jack, who was prompt to meet her each evening before she got out of sight of the scattered lights of the village. There was a penetrating drizzle of rain one night, and the roadway was dark, and every step splashed the slush and mud over her ankles. It seemed as she slowly climbed out of the village, that her aching feet slipped back faster than she could advance them. 
She saw Jack's figure looming up ahead at last with a relief too great for repression. Oh, Jackie boy, she cried. If you hadn't come soon, I would have fallen right down here in the road and died. She clung to his arm, sobbing with sheer weariness. The big fellow's voice was husky when he replied. This has got to stop, Mary. I've been telling Billy so. I suppose I'm thick-headed, but I can see as far into a millstone as the next one, I guess, and I believe that what you make in that confounded fur shop won't pay your doctor's bill, if you continue. You've got to stop it. I won't have it. We'll have you sick on our hands, and then what will become of the family, eh? <laughs> then you don't believe, with Mr. Calvert, that I'm a burden, too? said Pearl Mary with a laugh that was likewise a sob. Jack growled something very uncomplimentary to Uncle Calvert, and slipped his arm around her to aid her steps. His strong arm supported her all the way up the hill, and when they reached the low place in the road that Mr. Short had been trying to fill with rubbish, he picked up her bodily and carried her over the swamp. Oh, Jackie, how strong you are! she murmured, settling herself in his arms with a contented little sigh. He held her closer, and did not set her down when the swampy place was crossed. Her head on his shoulder, with the fair hair glistening with an aureole of raindrops, her deeply blue eyes half-shaded by the weary lids, her whole slight relaxed form in his arms, suddenly inspired in the young fellow an emotion so thrilling, so sweet, that it almost overpowered him. His own eyes became blurred, his step faltered. I'm too heavy, Jackie. Put me down, she whispered. But he refused, marching on in silence until he deposited her on their own doorstone. There she did not leave the shelter of his arms until she had kissed him. The Herons were a quietly affectionate family but they were not given to indiscriminate caresses. The boys had long since abandoned kissing Pearl Mary, and she was chary of either giving or accepting such favors. Jack opened the door, and, still in silence, guided her into the warm and glowing kitchen. But when the door closed again, Jack was shut up upon the outside of it. Billy came out to him by and by, and found his brother standing in the rain, his hat off, and his face with a strange emotion in it. The cripple seized his arm, and shook him a little. "'What's the matter, Jack? What are you mooning here for? Supper is all ready, and Pearl Mary is asking why you don't come in.' Then Jack looked at him, and his voice shook. "'Billy, Billy, we must tell her it isn't right.' She's near seventeen, Billy. She's a child no longer. This, this mustn't go on. Shh. Billy put a quick palm upon his brother's lips and dragged him out of sight as the door slowly opened and Pearl Mary peered forth. You mean? And then the crippled brother, looking close into Jack's face, read the answer to his half-uttered query. You mean that you are no longer a child, Jack. 
I did not think of that, sighed Billy. End of chapter 4